0: Hey, it's Emily and it's Kayla and you're listening to two Jane does this podcast contains some adult language graphic descriptions of crime scenes sexual assault and murder listener discretion is advised. guys, we're back for part two of Rodney Alcala, the Dating Game Killer, and last week we left you guys hanging on who was responsible for Jill Barkin's murder. So, just a quick refresh of what we covered in the last little bit of part one. He had appeared on the Dating Game Show, the Hillside Stranglers were behind bars, and they started questioning... Bianchi, who was one of the Hillside Stranglers, and began working their way through a list of victims, and this is when police found out that he was not responsible for Jill Borkham's murder. So, that was in early 1979, and now we are in February of 1979.
1: Right, so in February of 1979, Monique Hoyt receives a ride from Rodney. She tells him she's wanting to go anywhere but there. He tells her he's the photographer and asks to take photographs of her. They drive two hours away to a secluded area in the woods. He asks if she's comfortable taking nude photographs, which she was. However, she becomes bored and puts her clothes back on, and Rodney then asks her to pull her shirt over her head, and he strikes her, and she goes unconscious. When she came to, Rodney was raping her and began choking her, and she goes unconscious again. When she came to the second time, she sees Rodney lying beside her, crying. She decides to befriend him as her best shot at getting away, and she starts consoling and asking him not to tell anyone, afraid she'll get in trouble. On the way back to his apartment, they stop at a drive-thru and park. He asks her to wait while he went inside to use the restroom. As soon as he's out of sight, she escapes. She ran into a motel and begged for someone to call the police, stating what had happened to her. And when police arrived and began searching the parking lot, unfortunately, Rodney had already escaped. Police brought Monique in and began showing her mugshots, and she immediately pointed out Ronnie Alcala.
0: Which is insane, because if you listen to episode 2 or part 1 of the Dating Game Killer, you'll find out that he's pretty good at evading police in these
1: bigger crumbs. Right. He's evaded you know, like, the police multiple times. Right. Always like escaping escapes. before they get there.
0: Exactly. He escaped with Tally, and they didn't capture him until months later, and then it's, you know, the same thing with Monique. You know, he rapes her,
1: and then he's gone. It's like a revolving door for him. He's always, he does something, and then he escapes, and then... They find out who it was, and it's just a revolving door of this constant escaping and figuring out who he is and never actually putting the two together. Right. Or he walks free. One of the two.
0: Yeah, or he just goes to jail for like... Two, two years. Two years, and then he's back out. So, this is no different, um, because this happens in February, and in June, there's really no word from Rodney until... In June 1979 Jill Parenteau had went to a Dodgers game with a friend and when this friend was unable to reach her afterwards and she hadn't been to work she decided to ask her boss to send some police over to the apartment and check things out and less than an hour later a call came in to the Burbank Police apartment that a dead body was found so this was all happening at the same time Her friend was calling to have police dispatched to her apartment to check on her, and another phone call had come in letting them know that there was a dead body found at the apartment complex. And Jill was found naked on the bedroom floor, and the autopsy showed that her death was caused by strangulation, DNA was recovered and stored, but again, no data bank for comparison was available, and that was a common thread through part one is All of this has happened in the early 60s, 70s, 80s, and there's no data bank for comparison. The technology just simply wasn't there yet.
1: So police show up at Rodney's mother's house where he was living to question him about the attack on Monique Hoyt. He's unable to account for his whereabouts the day of Monique's attack, and he's brought in and charged with rape. He changes his story and says that he had taken a drive with her and that they had taken photographs. He also said that Monique consented to everything and then suddenly changed her mind, which if you remember, she kind of did. She was completely naked, taking photographs with him. She got bored, put her clothes back on.
0: Suddenly not giving consent, it's not like it doesn't happen. And, you know, people can change their minds. And if it's something that they're not comfortable with, that's one reason to change your mind.
1: And obviously her changing her mind upset him. Right. Causing him to rape her. So he panicked and strangled her, stuffed her shirt in her mouth, and raped her. Which, let's just talk about that for a minute.
0: If you're in panic mode, like, I know me, I can wake up in the morning and I'm running late for work, and I just brush my hair, brush my teeth, throw my clothes on, but then I can't find my keys. That's like a panic mode. yeah, Just running all over the place. But to say you panic, choke, strangled, raped, that, that just doesn't make sense.
1: No, it's kind of methodical in the process of what you're doing.
0: Exactly. It's like a default setting in his brain that was like, this is what I have to do. She knows what's happening. This is what I have to do in
1: order to, again, regain the upper hand in this
0: situation.
1: His bond was set at $10,000, and his mother managed to raise this money, and he was back in L.A. once again.
0: And I'm not saying his mom was a bad person, but she definitely seems like a Karen that would be like,
1: my child would never do this. I think, yeah. I have a good kid. Mm-hmm. I can see that. <laughs> uh, the same month, Ronnie resigns from the LA Times, stating that he's going to pursue his career in photography in Northern California. His co-workers wish him the best, as they only know him as a reliable employee, which... Seems a bit insane because, I mean, he's been on the FBI's Most Wanted list. I'm sure there was a bunch of news articles with his name in it, but perhaps it was the John Berger name. I don't know, but still.
0: Yeah, it could be, but even if it was under John Berger, his photo would have not changed. Right. It would have been the same face. And again, like we discussed in part one, when he initially got the job, they had no idea that he had already been to jail twice, that he was a person of interest in Ellen Hover's disappearance, and now... He's then been to prison twice, he's been in jail, and he just got released on bond, and the LA Times is none the wiser. Again, in the same month, so we're still in June, and this is going to be the downfall of Rodney Alcala, is this particular case. Twelve-year-old Robin Samso was enjoying the day on Sunset Beach with a friend. Rodney approached the two young girls and asked if he could take their pictures, which was famously his MO. And he told the little girls that this was a contest. And he would let them know if they had won. Never asked for their names. Never got any contact information. So, again, they were 12.
1: And he never asked their parents.
0: Exactly. He didn't, you know, they were, he, if there were consenting adults, he didn't ask anybody. At least that's not what I found. Even if they had won this contest, hypothetically there would have been no way for him to get back in touch with them because I'm sure there's tons of young girls just running around on a California beach. So, it just didn't make sense. Um, however, a nearby adult asked what they were doing and it just happened to be Robin's friend's neighbor. And this made Rodney scurry away because he I guess this part, and I just realized this while why I'm saying this out loud, I guess maybe this did show that In his mind, maybe he knew that it was wrong. Because if he didn't think that what he was doing was wrong, he would have just stayed there and tried to, like, explain the situation away to this adult.
1: Put on that charm for them and kind of work his way into still taking the photographs.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then it just makes me think back to his diagnosis uh, that he got back when he was discharged from the military where it was, you know, disregard for right and wrong. Maybe that's not completely accurate, at least in this case. So Robin and her friend end up going back to her friend's house when they realized that she was running late for her job at the ballet studio. And basically what she was doing is her mom was a single mom. She had other children to take care of. And Robin would work at the ballet studio in exchange for lessons. And her friend had told her to use her bike to go ahead and get there on time. Well, later that evening, when Robin didn't return home, they called her friend to see if she was still with her. Her friend stated that Robin wasn't there, and her mother, Marianne, tried to contact everyone that she could think of, but no one had heard from her. No one had seen her. So Marianne and her other children decided to go out on foot, you know, hitting the pavement, looking for her, and they didn't see her anywhere. She finally decided to call the police. And I know we had said in part one that we were trying to omit some of the names, but this, I had decided to keep this particular name in here.
1: Dana Croppa, a forester, was driving and saw a man and a little girl walking down an embankment by the road. She noticed that the little girl was walking stiffly, but assumed that it was a father and daughter type of day, going out into the woods, spending some time together. And she chose to mind her business and keep driving.
0: Which is probably what anyone would do. I don't know. Honestly. I mean... Well... I'm not nosy. Like I told y'all that in the Bitter Creek Betty episode. I ain't nosy. I ain't gonna be poking around. I ain't gonna be helping your business. But I mean, if you just see a, a, a man and a kid, it's not... It's not unnatural. That It's like a father-daughter type situation. Yeah,
1: but it, if... You notice, if you can see the signs physically, that maybe this kid's not super comfortable. I mean, to me, that would just, I would maybe want to be a bit nosy. But that's just me. On her way back through the same area, Dana saw the same car and the same man, but no little girl this time. That's when you get nosy. Right.
0: If you, if it looked fishy, it probably is fishy. That's a completely different case. You're coming back through the same area, same day. You just saw this man and little girl go down there, and then you drive back by, and the little girl's gone. Now that's suspicious.
1: It is, and it should raise some red flags to you. At least call 911. At least. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. So, she notices that the man had a stain on his shirt, but again, she decided to mind her own business and continue driving. However, she later revisited the site and walked down the embankment and found a decomposing human body. She had a nervous breakdown, resigned from the department, and never told a single person what she had seen.
0: Now, I'll say this. I would always like to come up on a dead body, but I also wouldn't want to because I don't know if I'm mentally
1: prepared for the weight that's going to be shooting into my brain from my eyeballs. But if you had a nervous breakdown and then you, like, immediately went back to the, like, the ranger station or wherever she was working at and your employees are asking you a bunch of questions, don't you think that, like, if you're not mentally prepared for what you've seen, you're going to end up spilling what you've seen? Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, like, you'll drop little, almost like subconscious hints, little things throughout the day. I would like to think that somebody would have picked up that she was okay but when i had researched that part it said that she actually made it back to the department she showered she tried to compose herself and that's when she decided i can't be here i can't do this and she was young i believe because i didn't include age and everything in here either but i believe she was like 19 20 21 so she's fairly young and I don't know. I don't think that, again, I don't think I could mentally. But I would like to think that I would still call. Even if I'm not mentally prepared. Well,
1: I mean, most I people like in that, that, like, that call. panicked, nervous breakdown. I mean, at least you would think that sh- you would call 911 in that situation. But, I mean, I know I would. I mean, I probably would be freaking freaking the fuck out, but... I'm gonna call 911, and they're probably not gonna understand a damn thing I'm saying. But at least a call, right? Yeah,
0: now, I would probably puke and cry and uh, just sit in my car for a while. And then when I'm still there, like two days later, somebody will be like, "Are you okay?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> but again, Dana doesn't call anybody. She doesn't tell anybody. She just quits, resigns. That's it. She's done.
0: So, going back to Robin's end of things with her family, police wanted to talk to her friend that she had been on the beach with that day. And her friend actually worked with a sketch artist to create a composite of the man that they had talked to on the beach that day. And this was broadcast on TV where Rodney's parole officers recognized him. The Good Samaritan, that back from Tally's case, actually recognized him as well. And then, just to kind of drive home the fact that this man was Ronnie Alcala, it just so happened that they did a rerun of the dating game show where he appeared. And 12 days after Robin's disappearance, a park ranger in the Sierra Madres found human remains that had been scavenged by animals with several bones missing. There were no cut or fracture marks observed in the bones, and no cause of death was able to be determined at that time. However, the teeth found matched those of Robin through the dental record comparison. Police also found blonde hair, a blue and yellow tennis shoe, and a 12-inch knife that was coated with what appeared to be blood. Mary Ann was able to confirm that the tennis shoes belonged to Robin. And Rodney Alcala was immediately a person of interest because obviously, if his parole officers recognize them, the Good Samaritan, everybody's making phone calls saying, "This is who this guy is."
1: Yeah, because they even reran dating game shows, so I can't imagine how many normal citizens are like, "Oh my God, this is this is the person you're looking for." He was just screwed at that
0: point, basically. And the officers actually went to his mother's home and began completing surveillance. They wanted to know his routine. They wanted to watch wherever he went because we all know serial killers like to go back to the site of their violence. They like to go back to their victims' bodies. They're just weird like that.
1: Yeah, they want to re-envision what they've done. They want to relive what they've done, go through the same feelings that they perhaps felt while they were doing these things. So, during this time, Rodney was dating a woman by the name of Elizabeth. She was taken aback when Rodney changed his appearance suddenly by cutting his hair off, but said it would take some getting used to. So, she's, you know, cool, you want to cut your hair, that's fine. I'll just have to get used to your new look. Not realizing that he's doing this because his picture's all over the place.
0: Yeah, he doesn't want to look like that guy that killed a 12-year-old.
1: Not at all. No, no. She was also a bit alarmed that he had gotten the carpet in his vehicle replaced, but shook it off after he had said that gasoline had spilled and the smell was super overwhelming.
0: Even though she smelled nothing, she does not recall smelling gasoline in his car at all. So the fact that he's just sitting here like, yeah, it just smells like gas. I just had to get it, get it taken out. I was getting headaches and stuff, Elizabeth.
1: No, you weren't, Rodney. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Rodney had told his girlfriend that he was planning to open a photography studio in Dallas and that he had investors and he wanted her to come with him. And Rodney told her that the departure date would be July 24th, 1979. However, police
0: had other plans for Rodney. Because at 7 a.m. on July 24th, 1979, While he was still asleep in bed, which I can't get that image out of my head. Like, somebody just kicking your door in and you're just in boxers asleep. And you're like, what? What? What's going on, man? (laughs) But he was still asleep in bed and he was arrested at his mother's house and charged with Robin's murder. And beforehand, obviously, they covered their bases. They had a search warrant. And this search warrant covered everything from any soil... Any, you know, non-native vegetation, his photography equipment, his photographs, all of that was included in this warrant and, you know, were things that they could take from the premises. And while they were searching the house, they actually found a receipt for a self-storage facility outside of Seattle, Washington. However, they couldn't investigate it because it wasn't part of the warrant, but they took down all the pertinent information just in case they needed to revisit it later. Well, while Rodney was in jail, he was making phone calls to his sister, and he kept dropping cryptic messages about this storage unit in Seattle. And the police were like, okay, this is fishy fishy. We gotta go check this out now. So, they travel all the way to Seattle. And they actually found the keys in his mother's house, so that was easy. They already had the keys on they just had to figure out which storage locker was his. And inside they found a ton of incriminating evidence against him. Uh, the storage locker contained pieces of jewelry, which they believe are trophies from his victims, which again, almost every serial killer keeps some sort of trophy, whether it's hair, jewelry shoes shoes panties whatever the case may be whatever tickles their fancy you know if it's dexter and his blood slides that's cool you know serial killers typically keep trophies so they found all this jewelry robin's mother Mary Ann, was actually able to identify a pair of golden globe earrings and she said that robin was wearing them And she knew they were hers because the posts on the back of the earring, she'd actually clipped with fingernail clippers because Robin always went through her jewelry and she ended up breaking off some of the posts on one. So she clipped the other with fingernail clippers to match. So she knew those were her earrings. And they also found over a thousand pictures and among those pictures were some that were labeled Tally Rape and Ode to New York by John Berger.
1: Which in a way, it kind of makes you think that some of the pictures he was taking were his trophies too. Right. That I didn't even think about that,
0: yeah. which again, if you go to our Instagram, if you go to our, it's on our Twitter, it's on our Facebook, you can still see some of the pictures because the Huntington Beach Police Department is still releasing them just to make sure everybody photographed is alive, they're well, because I think some of them are still considered cold cases. Or Jane does, whatever the situation is. They're just trying to make sure that everybody that was photographed is A-OK.
1: Or, you know, if they're not, at least families can obtain the closure that they need. You know, this this is who done it. This is what we found. We want to provide you with this closure. Yeah. Rodney was actually arraigned on July twenty-eighth, nineteen seventy-nine, and he pleads not guilty. Is remanded without bail and provided with a public defender. Which I don't even know how you... I mean, you can even say that you're not guilty. But then again, that goes back to his diagnosis of not having any sort of remorse or knowing right from wrong.
0: Yeah, not only that, it just leads me to question defenders. Because I've asked a million and a half different people. Do you think that you could ever defend somebody that you know is guilty and
1: still sleep at night? No, I couldn't. I don't think I could. No. I you mean, could. heck, I even had a pest control person tell me that because he couldn't properly treat my house, he didn't want to do it because he couldn't sleep at night. So there's no way that I could even think about, you know, defending someone who I know is very, very guilty. Yeah.
0: There's a rule. Be as honest as bug people. Be as honest. Be as as honest as bug people. people.
1: While in jail, Rodney is bragging about kidnapping and killing Robin, and his public defender steps down as his defense.
0: That would be me. 110%.
1: Yeah, like, you want to go and brag to all these other criminals about what you do? Nah, man. I'm out.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to put up a good fight for you if you're out here telling everybody you did it. No
1: thanks. Yeah. I can help you. They could use that against him. Yeah. So, um... He is provided with another defense attorney and this defense attorney decides to try to keep all previous crimes out of court as he felt that they would cause prejudices within the jury. However, the judge ruled that all prior crimes would be admissible as they were similar enough to his current charges. Judge is like, not in my court.
0: Not today. So, this is where things get interesting and why I decided to keep Dana Crapo's name in here. And it's not to drag her through the mud or anything like that. They did call on her to be an eyewitness for the prosecution. And I didn't include everything in here, but she had to actually work with, you know, the FBI and police. And basically she had to be interviewed about the situation without knowing that she was being interviewed about the situation before they were able to get a set story or a set recount of events from her because her dates would change her times would change the whole story was flip-flopping all over the place like a fish out of water
1: right because she i mean honestly she had that mental breakdown so I, i can imagine wanting to go back and relive my breakdown yeah that's a trauma i mean that's that is very much a trauma it's not something you expect to find just on a monday
0: stroll just doing your job the prosecution relied heavily on her eyewitness testimony and they wanted to just get this out in the air first and foremost like hey yeah we've had some issues with her and her recount of events her timelines her dates things have changed around a little bit but she had a mental breakdown like she was absolutely not mentally stable for everything that she witnessed that day when she found robin's body but the defense chose to steal drug her testimony through the mud and they pretty much stated those same exact things. So she changed her story several times. Dana let them know that when she found Robin's decomposing body, the hands and feet were missing, her head was laying beside her torso,
1: her clothing was scattered,
0: and I couldn't imagine.
1: Like now you know why she had such a bad breakdown about this. I mean, it is one thing to find like a dead person just laying there, like sitting up against a tree or something, but a whole other realm of finding someone cut up into pieces and just laying there.
0: And I mean, who knows if it was Rodney that did this to her? Which, if there's a knife, I would assume he had some some sort of role in her body parts being severed. But they also said that she'd been out there for the, you know, those 12 days and the animals had gotten a hold of her too.
1: And they also said that they didn't find any type of cuts or anything on her bones that they found. Yeah. So, did she really find her severed like that because of Rodney? Or, like you said, was it because of animals or God knows what?
0: I don't know. Either one's making me get clammy thinking about it. Yeah. (laughs) Dana was able to identify Rodney as the man that she had seen with Robin that day heading down the embankment. And he just sat there and showed no emotion. Like, didn't even acknowledge Dana. He basically was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just here because you told me to be here. But I have
1: nothing to do with this. And you have to wonder, did he... Not show any emotion because of his own diagnosis and not being able to feel remorse or anything like that. Or did his attorney actually say, don't react to anything? That's true. That's true. Just keep a straight face. Don't make any type of reactions. You know, don't make yourself look like the guilty person. Because that was his job. He was there to say that Ronnie was not guilty.
0: Just like they tell you when you get into a vehicle accident, never say I'm sorry because that's admitting guilt. And his defense attorney could have told him the same thing. Don't acknowledge anybody in this courtroom unless it's me or the judge. Just sit there. And I, I don't know
1: how you could do it. I don't either. Because, I mean, I mean, with him not being able to feel guilt, of course, it's going to be easier for him to not show any emotions. But for someone who recognizes guilt and feels remorse, they're going to start crying or something. I mean, laughing maybe out of hysteria. I don't know. Yeah, the
0: telltale signs are in their face. And I know me, if I've done something that I know was wrong or I felt
1: really bad about it, it'd be all over my face. I I just couldn't do it. I couldn't imagine. Rodney's defense attorney filed a motion to dismiss the case as the state hadn't proved anything, made an objection that his prior crimes were brought into the case, and made a motion to drop the kidnapping charge due to lack of evidence. If found guilty, a conviction of kidnapping would be a special circumstance making him eligible for the death penalty. Again, clearly his attorney doesn't want him to die. He's just doing his job. We're not trying to put his attorney in a negative light. He is just doing his job in this case. And, I mean,
0: there's some defense attorneys that you've seen on documentaries, the news, whatever the situation may be, that they'll know going in their clients guilty and all they're trying to do is keep them from being put on death row or getting a maximum sentence they they're basically just trying to offset the worst the case worst scenario. case scenario
1: exactly so that's all he's doing he's just doing his job we're not trying to paint him a negative light in any way however all motions were denied. The defense had a psychologist review all interviews with Dana Croppa and stated that her testimony was a fabrication of what she thought she may have seen. So here we are, you know, this woman's not stable. She can't have a proper testimony.
0: Which I could see in some ways how that comes into play because I understand that she changed her story several times. That's not, you know, that's not accurate making those statements against Dana because she was kind of wishy-washy.
1: And actually, the psychologist was accused of being bought by the defense, to which he replied that he was not a whore.
0: I just thought that was too funny to not include in there. Just see somebody sitting there. I'd imagine he's a white-haired man, glasses, maybe a beard, who knows. But he's like, I am not a whore.
1: I have not been bought by this person. (laughs) Defense stated that the state failed to meet their burden of proof, and in total, the trial lasted two months. So this is two months' worth of them just going back and forth and trying to drag Dana's testimony in the mud, drag the psychologist in the mud, all to get him set free.
0: Yeah, and not only that, you gotta think, Mary Ann, Robin's mother, is having to sit there and listen to all of this, you know, all the grisly, horrible just terrible details about the death of her 12-year-old daughter. I couldn't imagine what she must have been feeling. It took the jury two days to deliberate. And actually, I take my previous statement back of not knowing how she felt because she actually happened to have a 25 caliber handgun in her purse that she was ready to use on Rodney. Should he be let off, be able to walk, because she wasn't going to have it. She had already determined that if he gets let off on a technicality, then I'm just going to go ahead and take him out in front of Jesus and everybody, and that's just going to be the end of it.
1: And I don't blame her. I I
0: mean... No, I don't blame her at all.
1: Having to sit there and listen to all that stuff, and then in the end be told, hey, this case is just not working out. He's going to be set free because you guys didn't bring the proper stuff. No. I
0: would...
1: get done ever over with.
0: And, I mean, the prosecution was pretty much solely riding on Dana Crawford's testimony. And if the defense, which I would, even though I wouldn't, I couldn't do it myself, but if the defense was doing their job, they would try to tear her to shreds, which is, you know, what they did, but at that time, that's all they had, pretty much, was her testimony. But the jury came back with the following, murder with use of a deadly weapon. Guilty. Forcible kidnapping. Guilty. The defense then tried to argue that Rodney had diminished capacity, claiming he had a sickness, and it only took the jury two hours to deliberate uh, the penalty for his crimes, and they sentenced him to death. And Rodney again sat there and showed no
1: emotion. Which, I mean, if someone told me your sentence is death, I don't care if my attorney told me not to show any emotions. I think I'd crack at that point, knowing that my end is nigh. I'm going to die. That's it for me.
0: I would shit my pants, and then I probably wouldn't be able to talk. I would just be like in paralysis,
1: just I'd be, shocked beyond belief. I'd be plank from Ed, Ed and Eddie. just sitting there <laughs> with no emotion, poop running down the way. Oh, gross. <laughs> So, Rodney was then tried for Monique Hoyt's rape and was found guilty and given nine years. In 1981, appeal was denied for removal of the special circumstance of kidnapping in Robin's case. And in 1984, he appealed this sentence and actually won. The verdict was overturned after California Supreme Court determined jurors in his trial had been improperly informed of his prior sex crimes.
0: Which I don't agree with that. I think if you're going to look at Rodney Alcala as a person, as an offender, I think everything criminally, any paper trail he's left through the jails, prisons, that all needs to come into play because that's how you're going to establish, you know, the violence
1: of this person. You know, their outlook on other human beings. And I mean, plus he's already been... You know, in jail, what two other times?
0: Yeah, he's been. He went to jail two times. Once for Tally's case, then he went for Julie, and then he actually. I think he did a brief stint. We didn't
1: get him to do much detail, but he well, did he was, another brief stint for drug charges. Drug charges, yeah. And then, I think that was it. So he's already a, a convicted felon. Yet you want to say that all those other things don't matter.
0: And the fact that both other, you know, and the fact that the, the two other times that he's been in jail, those were violent offenses. Kidnapping is not just a, oh, come here. I'm going to hold you by the hand. You're going to get in my car. That's not, you know,
1: it's not like
0: thing. And he almost killed Tally.
1: Yeah. It's not like going out here and like getting a speeding ticket. It's not like that. Or shoplifting. You know, shoplifting's not necessarily considered a violent crime, unless you kill somebody, obviously. But kidnapping and raping and almost killing somebody is. Exactly. And
0: who's to say that just because he didn't succeed in killing Tally, you know, given the flow chart of violence and murder that doesn't probably exist, that would be the next step is to actually end someone's life.
1: Yeah. In 1986, Ronnie received a new trial, but it would have to continue without Dana Krapa, as she spoke with the judge away from jurors and stated that she didn't remember what she had witnessed. So, once again, she's, you know, her story was all over the place, and to me, it kind of sounds like she just doesn't want to be involved at this point, point. and the judge dismissed her due to her mental status. The judge did approve her prior testimony to be read to jurors, though. Which I love.
0: I love that he's like, I know that you can't be here because you're struggling mentally. But, you know, that's why we got homegirl Teresa over here typing up everything during the trial. So we're going to be able to just read off everything that you said previously. And you can't
1: can't just take that away because, I mean, she did see it. Granted, she changed her story, but she did see it. And it is the proof that the jurors deserve to hear.
0: Exactly. It's not something that you should just omit from a case. Regardless of somebody's mental status that just just because she was wishy-washy and couldn't, you know Do things in a linear fashion doesn't mean that what she didn't see wasn't real or the people that she saw weren't real Everything was very real. It was just overwhelming to her For whatever reason they played the 1978 dating game appearance that this was to show that Rodney regularly wore earrings and that those golden globe earrings could have been his. And every documentary and all the research that I did for him, and even the pictures that you can see online, if you just look up Rodney Alcala dating him, you can't tell that he's wearing an earring. Number one, the camera quality is so terrible in the 70s, but his argument was that those Golden Globe earrings could have been his because he regularly wore earrings and he tried to use this appearance on the dating game show to show that he wore earrings. However, image quality was poor. He had long hair and you couldn't even tell that he was
1: wearing earrings. Not to mention he said some pretty weird disturbing things in that show. Oh yeah, that, that show is gross and smutty and... If you ever want to go and watch his appearance on the Dating Game Show, it is on YouTube. And you can just look up Dating Game Show, Rodney Alcala, and it'll pull up. Just listen to the things he says because it's really
0: very strange. I know one of the questions was like, I'm having a dinner party and I'm going to serve you. What would you be and what would you look like? And he literally says like he's a damn banana. Like, if you're inviting me over for a dinner party and all you have on the table is a bowl of bananas, I'm going to be pretty pissed. <laughs> i kidding. Please feed me. The dumbest <laughs> answer. But, like, the follow-up for him was like, oh, can you tell me what you look like? And he's like, peel me. So stupid <laughs> and corny. It just makes you want to die considering the person that we now know who he is. Rodney was again convicted and sentenced to death and he again appealed the sentence because due process and all that fun stuff and he won the appeal again because it was determined that this time his defense attorney didn't
1: put up a strong enough defense for him let me just point out that this is 7 years of appeals and retrials for him yeah like he's already been sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. Yet he's had seven years to appeal that verdict and just have continuing retrials. Yeah, girl. That stuff takes time. Like, I,
0: and I don't know. This is, you know, maybe we'll put a poll out on Facebook. Do you agree with the death penalty? Because, you know, they have a right to, a, you know, a fair hearing. Mm-hmm. You got to follow due process, all of that fun stuff. That we're not going to get into. Because this is not a law podcast. This is just a podcast about serial killers, true crime, that
1: fun stuff. Yeah, I know nothing about all this law stuff. I don't
0: either. But I know that these things take time. And I know the majority of people that are put on death row, they'll sit there for 20 years before anything's done. Like, look at Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy was on death row for years. And actually got a stay of execution a couple different times, I believe. Because he thought oh, here's my chance, I'm going to help the FBI, I'm going to help them label serial killers, I'm going to help them, you know, better their expertise in this area, and they'll let me live. So, it took him
1: years before he was executed. And it's no
0: different with anybody else.
1: In 2002, a law had been passed allowing officials to gather DNA samples from prisoners and enter into a database in hopes that it would solve old cases. Oh Hallelujah! We <laughs> finally, finally finally have some way to compare DNA samples. DNA was actually found on Georgia Wixted's body matching Rodney Alcala Bam bam. In 2003, Rodney was brought up on new charges for her murder. Burglary and rape were special circumstances, making him eligible for the death penalty.
0: Double wham-bam.
1: And Rodney would be linked to three other murders. Jill Barkham, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parentu, Making five known victims. He was 62 when he was arraigned for their murders.
0: And thank God. Because how long were these, you know, victims' families... And friends, neighbors, communities waiting to find out what happened to these women. And finally, they could feel, I'm not going to say at rest or at ease, but there was, and if you believe in closure, there was some closure there knowing that the evil person that had done these horrible things to their friends, loved ones, was going to be put behind bars. Well, actually, stay behind bars because he was already there. Yeah. This was just going to kind of hammer in, like,
1: you're not going anywhere, bud. Not this time. He was actually tried again in 2010, and the trials for Georgia, Jill Barkham, Charlotte, Jill, and Robin's murders were combined. Again,
0: I I love that. Let me just say that. I love that they were like, no, we're not going to waste our time. We're just going to combine all of these murders into one case so we could just be done with you. However,
1: Rodney was very determined to represent himself rather than getting an attorney. He was able to question several witnesses including Robin's mother, which I cannot believe this at all.
0: I don't know how that that's a big ethical thing for me. Like there should be no way that he should be able to question his victim's mother. If he wants to question the psychologist or other experts in the field, that's fine. But to question her
1: is just, I find that repulsive. But here's the thing. I think he did it just so he kind of just punch it to you, lady. Because he asks her how it felt to get the notification that Robin wasn't coming home.
0: Girl, I'm telling you, I would have whipped my 25 out my pocketbook and I would have shot him right
1: there. I really think he was just wanting to get that last bit of wrangled emotion from somebody because he's in jail. He hasn't been able to, you know, go and commit more murders, so he's not filling that void. So this was his way of sticking it to her, filling that void one last time by asking her how it felt.
0: That's just disgusting. And he again oddly hones in on these damn golden earrings. He is not letting it go. And I'm sure he went down swinging and swearing that he wore these earrings. And again they play his 1978 dating game show appearance to show that he was wearing an earring. And then as if things couldn't get any freaking weirder. He calls himself to the stand.
1: I'm calling Rodney Alcala to the stand. (laughs) Literally.
0: Literally. He acted as lawyer and client and questioned himself.
1: So do you think it was like the cartoons where like that one person is playing two different people so you like rush up to where they sit and then they rush back down to the floor?
0: (laughs) I really hope that's what it's like. I hope he like... Went under oath, like, I swear to tell, you know, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then he ran back out and was like, Mr. Alcala, do you wear earrings? Runs back to the witness stand, or, yeah, I think that's what they call it. They run back to the stand, and he's like, yes, I do, actually. Take a look at that, you know, roll that beautiful dating game show footage. (laughs) like, so stupid. And they said the jury was just sitting there like, what the hell? ...is happening right now. And I don't... I wouldn't know what to do if I witnessed that. I wouldn't either. I would feel like I was in a circus. I would literally... I guess I would just say... Okay, maybe he
1: really does need to be in prison because he has absolutely lost his marbles at this point. And again, Rodney was found guilty this time, but for all five cases. (sighs) And a week later, he was sentenced... Monique was called to the stand and testified to the brutality she faced. Rodney feigned an apology and was offended that she didn't accept it. Which...
0: Which who would? Yeah. You knocked me out like three times in the middle of the woods and raped me. Why would I accept your apology? I'm also not a person that's like... I don't know. I wouldn't even want to talk to someone. This, like, the spirituality that surrounds forgiveness. I'm not that person. Even though they're like, the forgiveness is for you, not them. Like, I don't no, think.
1: I'm no, I'm not doing it. No, I don't think I would want that person's forgiveness. Just leave me alone. Go away. And Tally actually also took the stand as she was no longer afraid of him.
0: And let's just say this. at This time I believe, and I could be wrong... But I believe she was in her 50s at this point. Everything happened when she was an eight-year-old girl. And now she's finally getting on the stand. And I believe, like I said, I believe she was in her 50s when she got on there. And she just let him know, like, you're no longer a monster under the bed. I see you for exactly who you are. You don't have any power over me anymore. And I just, I bet that would feel so good to finally confront this person.
1: Yeah, I feel like I would be more apt to confront the person who did something to me rather than accept his pity apology.
0: Oh, exactly. And family members of some of the other victims also took the stand. And like I you know, going back to the community, I believe... One of them, it might have been Charlotte Lamb, I can't remember, I didn't write everything down, but, you know, some of them were like neighbors. They were like, she was a very nice young woman, and you took her life, you ended it too soon, and, you know, be siblings that, you know, basically like sent hexes out with their eyeballs that were like, we we hope you get sodomized every day for the rest of your life while you're in prison.
1: Which is kind of great because, you know, Rodney drug everybody through the mud and made everyone feel terrible. So these people getting to say these things to his face is like a stab back at him for them. It probably made them feel a whole lot better and gave them their closure that they needed.
0: Right. And I really like that they allow those victim impact statements To be right in court now because I think even though the trial is about this person getting justice, I think sometimes we focus too much on the offender and not on the people that they've affected. So, I really appreciate that they do that. Rodney was sentenced to death in less than an hour. Super easy. Good. So, in 2011, he was indicted on... Cornelia Crilly, which if you remember in a, you know part one, we called her Michael because that's what she liked to go by. Hers and Ellen Hoover's murders, and in 2012 he pled guilty and was sentenced to an additional 25 years to life. And the the circumstance there where it was, you know, Robin's case was in California, theirs was back in New York. The way that was going to work was if California dropped their charges, then he would serve 25 to life for Ellen and Michael's murders, but everybody knew that wasn't going to happen. He was stuck in California, and his attitude about it when I researched that part was basically like, yeah, sure, whatever you want. I killed these girls. Just get me back to California because I'm fighting a death sentence over there. And in 2016, he was actually charged with the murder of Christine Thornton from Wyoming. Um, Her photo was among those in the storage set that were released to the public. And he was also a person of interest in murders in San Francisco, Washington State, New Hampshire, and Arizona as well. So, as far as police and investigators go, they're not done with trying to find all the people that he's connected to and you know finally be able to put his name on those cases as this is who did it and a little little sprinkle on things was investigators from wyoming actually came to california because they wanted to interview him about christine thornton and he had her you know he was shown a photograph that he had taken of her on a motorcycle And he basically, like, petted this picture. Ew. And, like, traced the outline of her body with his finger. And the investigators were, like, full body chills. He was basically reliving everything that he had did. And when they asked him if he had been to this desert Wyoming, he just said, like, yeah, that's my area. And they were like, what the hell do you mean that's your area? And he's like, I've been there. They wouldn't be able to get him back to Wyoming to actually serve the sentence. Because again, he's stuck in California on death row. But it was also because his health is failing him, which poor Rodney Alcala, sorry. Uh, but the medical transport from California to Wyoming, the cost associated with that would have been so great. That it just, it wasn't worth it. But for now, he is 77 years old and remains on death row.
1: I mean, at this point, He's probably just going to die in prison.
0: Oh yeah, he'll die an old man. He'll just die an old man in a cell. And they said that his cell was terrible. Like the paint was peeling off the walls. There were just flies. But yeah, I'm glad he's there where he die and put an end to his miserable, shitty
1: life. And that's all we have on the Dating Game Killer.
0: Thanks for listening to 2 Jane Does. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday at 6 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review so that way others can notice us too. Catch us on Facebook at 2 Jane Does where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts.
1: If you have any cases that you want us to cover and go into detail with you can leave us a message on our Facebook page or if you just happen to wind up on our website you can send us a message there.